Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game. I'm Gabriel Marcotti with a football podcast from The Times where Premier League fans can get every goal, every game, everywhere. A reminder to everybody that we're going on the road, and I'm terribly excited, as I'm sure uh, is uh, Chris Skinner. You can join the football debate at live shows in Birmingham, Newcastle, and Manchester in the Great Northwest. Tickets cost £5 for Times Plus members and £7.50 for non-members. To book, visit www.ctickets, that's S-E-E tickets, not the marine kind, dot com slash the times, or better yet, do it the old-fashioned way. Call or text 871 620 4025. Expect some great guests, and not just them, but me too. Back to the present, and welcome to my guest. It's Alison Rudd, Pedro Pinto, the first time this year we've had him on, and from some location near Rickmansworth, it's Rory K. Smith. Coming up, we'll be discussing Grumpy Jose and lovely AVB, but there's one place to start, and it's Old Trafford. Rory, I have to start with you because um, I love the little stat that you you put in there about David Moyes. Uh, this is Manchester United's worst points total in the league since 1989-90. So everything is bad at Old Trafford. However, uh, floating around, as you point out, following their League Cup win over Liverpool, there was another stat. Uh, that suggested that because he'd won five of eight games at that point in all competitions, he had made the best start of any new United manager since Sir Matt Busby way back in 1946. Um, I'm assuming one of those two stats is more meaningful than the other. I think each, each is equally meaningless, to be honest. I think, yeah, the, the, I think the, you can look, look to the stats to prove whatever you want, really, with, with, with anything, as we all know. But the, the, the key fact with Moyes is that Manchester United are 12th. That is the stat that matters in this instance. That suggests that what, however you spin the other results and what have you, he has not had a very good start to his career as Manchester United manager. That's not saying he's a bad manager or that they should sack him or that he's a terrible human being or that he should be jailed or anything like that. He's just not had a very good start to his career at Manchester United. And I think, to be honest, he's probably, I think we all knew it would be difficult for him, but I don't think anyone expected it to be quite this difficult. Alison, this West Brom game, I thought it'd been a while since I'd seen United play so poorly. But what I thought was interesting was I was wondering, and maybe I was the only one wondering this, at what point he was going to start rotating, you know, start giving guys breathers because obviously they've got the Champions League and all these competitions they're in. 
this is the game in which he did it. No Fellaini from the start. You had uh, Evans at the back, Jones, whatnot, <laughs> Butner. Um, and it all backfired. Is it as simple as that? I mean, would the real United eleven have fared better? Well, we don't know, do we? I mean, I would disagree with Rory that the position of 12th is meaningful. I don't think we'd care too much about United being 12th if they were playing well, if, if there was some sense of Moyes stamping his identity on the team, if they'd just been a bit unlucky with a few results and everyone would know it's a bit of a false position and in a couple of weeks' time it'll all, they'll all be singing, dancing in the stands at Old Trafford. It's, it's the fact that we... The fact that you asked me that question, Gab, that's the, that's the meaningful bit of it. We don't know Thank what you. Moyes is trying to do at, at Old Trafford. Is, it is the rota- was the rotation against West Brom his way of saying to the world, uh, yeah, I can handle uh, European competition because he's got no great experience of that. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do in the Champions League. When you've got a league campaign, you're supposed to be aiming for a top finish. So it's, it's as though he's almost not paralysed by the fact that he's under such scrutiny but I think he's having to try harder than he would at any other club to sort of prove prove he knows what he's doing and, and once you start doing that it, as you say it will backfire because you're not true to the team you're not true to training you're true to trying to prove some surreal point out there Yeah I think it's always tough when you try too hard at anything and uh, when you come in to replace someone like Sir Alex Ferguson you want to prove you're your own man one of the mistakes was letting all the backroom staff go another mistake is uh, communicating badly about Wayne Rooney all summer long and making that a distraction and then another mistake is waiting until the last day of the transfer window to bring in an extra player and that extra player and that extra player communicated better uh, over Wayne Rooney in the summer what, 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 what should well, he, Moyes have done? He could have not uh, said publicly that in his mind Wayne Rooney was a replacement for Van Persie. He didn't actually say that. That was something that was horribly misquoted. I mean, I, I, I take your point that maybe he needs to be more careful how he phrases it. But if you look at the whole quote, he actually says, Wayne Rooney's so important to us. Wayne Rooney can play, can play with Van Persie. Wayne Rooney can play behind Van Persie. Wayne Rooney can fill in for Van Persie when he's not there. You know, he, he didn't actually say that. I, mean, I, I take your point that that was a perception, but that's something where I think we in the media have to, you know, hold our heads up a, a little, hold our hands up because we kind of totally played into it and this whole message that Rooney's people put out that he was all distressed and everything like that. Well, I think that there's a, a midpoint there uh, that is probably the truth, like with everything, but still... From from a, from a journalist's point of view, I didn't get the impression that Wayne Rooney was too wanted at Manchester United this this summer. There weren't enough enough quotes out there from David Moyes saying how important he was. And for me, he's one of the most important players on that team, along with Van Persie. But as I was saying afterwards, he brings in Fellaini at the last minute. Fellaini would take some more, a, a little bit of time to adapt to that team. And again, the midfield, the creative midfielder, still doesn't exist. And the, the back line, as we saw uh, this weekend uh, is not deep enough because Phil Jones is turning into the new John, I don't know where I'm going to play but I'm good at doing something O'Shea and Alex Butner is still a growing player and Ferdinand's past his best and Johnny Evans I personally never thought was that great so I mean the goals they conceded it just shows that that, that back line in the midfield defending isn't what good you, enough. What you've just listed are the reasons why Moyes has to try hard because, or try too hard because it's a bit of a mess and he's got all the pressures of being the successor to Ferguson. 
Alison, um, have we not got the got this kind of wrong? Not 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 wrong, but we've, we've maybe underestimated what he's trying to do. He's not just replaced Sir Alex Ferguson and sort of walked into a side that that was kind of perfect and was you know one of Ferdy's best. He's walked, he's replacing Sir Alex Ferguson. That's job one. And the second one is he, this is United a United that needs vast surgery to the squad because as Pedro's just pointed out, there's players there who aren't good enough. There's players there who were good enough but aren't anymore. There's a lot a, a lot of filler in the squad. There's a lot of kind of okay players. John, Johnny Evans is kind of okay. And Ferdy's sheer kind of presence disguised that for two or three years. And what Moyes, I think, Whoa. is maybe finding is that it's not just he has to replace his legendary manager, but he's, he's going to have to break up that squad. Now, it's interesting you, you, you say that, Roy, because that, I mean, those same thoughts, and you can read them in the game today, are are basically uh, echoed by our boss, Tony Evans, which makes them correct. Um, but is there really all this filler in the squad? Because, yes, when I see Valencia and Young and, and I see Jones play like that, I feel that way. But by the same token, Jones and Smalling are, are, are England players. They're young players who, who are growing. Um, Carrick had a monster season last year. I actually think that Nani, Welbeck, and Kagawa are very good. Van Persie's exceptional. De Gea is young and growing. This is a squad that, that won the title by 11 games last year. And I want to throw something else to you, to Roy. Um, your, your, your close friend, Raymond Verheyen, was on Twitter and absolutely took a chainsaw to Moyes' private parts, um, basically talking about how, you know, well, first of all, he, he mentioned, he called the English media Jurassic Park. He, he talked about the clueless uh, idiots, I think it was, in uh, Moyes' backroom staff. He echoed the fact that he let um, all the uh, all of Fergie's experienced backroom staff, including his mate, Rene Mullenstein, go. And, and he talked about how Moyes has fundamentally, and this is what I want to get at, it's fundamentally a small team mentality. So he's... He, he, he plays reactive football, right? He sits, he plays on the counter, and when you're united, you can't do that because teams will come will come at you. It's not something, personally, I agree with because you know they got walloped by um, a City as well. Um, but do you buy that? Is there some truth to that, or is it just kind of stereotyping his time at Everton, especially the, the last couple of years? I'm always slightly wary of taking Raymond behind too seriously. Um, as, you, as you say, he tends to have a, an ulterior motive. Whether that is, is it a sort of aggrandizing Rennie Moulinstein at this point, I, I, I wouldn't like to speculate. I, I don't think necessarily that, that Moyes is, should be condemned forever to, to be in kind of a small-time reactive manager, or a small-team reactive manager, sorry. Um, I think he is capable of change. We know he's a good manager. And the thing that surprised me most about the West Brom game was how disorganised the defence was, which is the one thing Moises Everton always had, whether they were in one of their good seasons or one of their bad seasons, was, was that they were well organised and, and United looked a complete shambles at the back. And that that is not a hallmark of a Moyes team. And in, in fact, that kind of counteracts for Hines' point, which is a, a small team manager with an inherently cautious mentality would surely sort the defence out first. Um, but I think, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of kind of cultural shocks that Moyes is probably discovering. He is a manager who's used to managing a team who don't have to lead the play particularly. And that is a different skill. Um, but I've got to admit that I'm going to stand by my point that there is filler in the squad and that he's working with raw materials that aren't quite as good as everyone thought they were. Well, and Pe that is the problem. Pedro, that sets us up nicely for a conversation. Those who don't know, Pedro and I drove in together and we were talking about this. Moyes came out with that statement which 
I felt bad for him when he said it because I can kind of tell what he's trying to say, but I also know how it's going to be spun in the public debate when he comes out and he says, to win the Champions League, you need five or six world-class players. And, you know, we don't we don't have that yet. We have a couple guys who are. We have a couple guys who may be one day, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm assuming what he's driving at is simply that to win the Champions League, we need to be better. But that can easily be spun into, I'm sorry, you ungrateful Moyes. You... You won the title by 11 points last season. You've inherited this squad. This thing with half a dozen world-class players is BS. But beyond that, what kind of a message are you sending to your players? Are you telling, are you telling people like, like, like Nani and Kagawa and Carrick and that they're not good enough? I mean, was this just a mistake to speak in this way at this juncture? I, I think it was also because what experience does David Moyes have managing world-class players himself. Is he a world-class manager himself? He's never won anything. So that's where I would start to deconstruct that. You sound like Mourinho there. Um, well, it's just a fact, though. Um, but uh, as far as as far as the, the rhetoric there, it is wrong. When you say you can't do something until or you can't do something if, it, the, the press will just take you can't do something. And he should know better by now. And a team like Manchester United can never admit that they can't win the Champions League, which is something that they they have to go for every season, whether they like it or not. Um, West Brom, you certainly get certain games, Rory, where you get an upset and things kind of go their way. I'd argue that that was the case with Villa uh, against City. But then other times you get upsets where West Brom fully deserved it and, in fact, could have scored more. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you are absolutely right, Gap. Thank you. There you okay, go. Enough, Rory. Um, Pedro? Just a quick word about West Brom. I was very surprised with the way they played. I was surprised they were that good. And the kid Berahino, I mean, he's scoring <laughs> every time he's out there on the pitch, whether it's for the England 21s, whether it's in the Capital One Cup, and now with, in the Premier League as well. And he's on, what, £850 a week. They're working on a contract uh, renegotiation, and they better do it quick. But this guy is, is he's really good. At least he seems like he's really good at the moment. Can, can I make a point about Saida Berahino? With, 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 with no, no insults meant to Victor and each of So West Brom are West Brom. <laughs> Their ambition this season is, is to not get relegated and probably to finish like 10th. That's probably what West Brom would, would be happy with. So they, they sound Nicholas Anelka as, as kind of a frontline striker. That's fine. He's experienced, possibly over the hill, but, you know, he's an experienced, proven goal scorer, blah, blah, blah. You then have Saida Berahino, who you must know is, is potentially a, a very good footballer, who certainly looks like he's capable of being a, a kind of mainstay of a Premier League team. Maybe not Pele, maybe not Cristiano Ronaldo, but kind of a good Premier League striker. And he's 20 or 21. Why do you then go and spend six million quid on Victor Anicibi, who's OK but never stores any goals? Why not give Ber- Berahino the chance to be your second striker, to be the reserve to an Elka? Why that cowardice not to give the young players a chance? And that is part of the problem with English football. I would argue probably has something to do with the fact that uh, Anelka is is older. There's going to be question marks with him coming back. You don't know that he's going to be a week-in, week-out striker. But I take your point, Roy. Six million pounds for Anichibi sounds like a lot of money. Um, maybe you... You know, if you are going to spend six million, maybe you spend the money on somebody with uh, with more of an upside. Um, Alison, um, some people say that Amalfitano isn't even the good Amalfitano brother, but he scored an absolutely breathtaking goal with a bit of help from Rio Ferdinand, who instead of jockeying him, decided to launch the lunge in for the ball and whiff. Um, 
Did that, from a purely aesthetic perspective and as a neutral, did that warm your heart perhaps or, or are you more partial to uh, Jordan Mutch or Brian Rees? Yeah, it's been, it's been a, a marvellous weekend for goals. Um, I think we should have some sort of vote system. Do we have a vote system where people can say, which was the most aesthetically pleasing goal of the weekend? I was at Fulham and saw the uh, two goals there you referred to, which were, which were almost identical. Left foot to Curlers, 25 yards out, very significant. Um, but I don't know. I don't know which my favourite is, but I I like to see the beauty. I, I've, I've always claimed the Premier League isn't all about blood, thunder and passion. You get a lot of aesthetically pleasing moments and this weekend was one of those. And of course you can use the Times Goal app to uh, to see these goals that we're talking about in uh, in case you missed it. Right, North London Derby, Spurs and Chelsea. Um, before we get into the game itself, uh, Pedro, I'm going to throw it to you because it was weird. I read so much stuff in the media about the relationship with between Villas, Boas, and Mourinho. And I realized that we're sort of taught to find a line, find a theme. But I kind of feel like, all right, so the Master Apprentice story, that's kind of been done and dusted for a long time. And we've known for a long time that they really don't like each other. Um, you know these guys a little bit. How much time do they really spend thinking about each other and what went wrong and stuff like that? Look, I think one thing everybody needs to understand about Jose Mourinho is that either you're with him or you're against him. There's no middle ground. And like George W. Bush. So, <laughs> don't mess with Texas. Um, so from the moment that AVB decided to leave the special one, he was never going to be a friend anymore because no one does that. No one has the right to to leave him. That's the way he thinks. So this this battle mentality that he's based his whole philosophy on throughout his life uh, has to continue, and AVB was just collateral damage in that. Uh, I honestly feel that personally, Mourinho doesn't dislike uh, André, and André actually has a lot of uh, feelings for, for, for José as well, because he helped him, gave him one of his first chances after Bobby Robson, Sir Bobby Robson at Porto. Um, so I don't think really they dislike each other. I think it's part of Mourinho's football philosophy, whether you have to make a line, and that guy is now a rival like anybody else. Uh, I think there was no need to ignore him in that uh, pre-match press conference when he refused to talk about AVB at all. But this is the way he is. This is the this is how he plays the game and and uh, I don't think they're friends. I don't think they stay in touch, but I don't think they hate each other either. It's just part of the football game. Uh, right. I want to ask you this because this is the one thing that I still haven't been able to uh, to figure out uh, in terms of this whole master apprentice relationship is the football that Mourinho plays. I think is extremely different from the football that AVB plays. And I know you spent time obviously looking at these two guys. How do you how, how do you work that out? That you know they, they work together so closely, hand in glove, and then when AVB becomes a manager, he goes off and does something totally different. Well, I suppose that's that's natural, isn't it? Almost that the the, the, the I, I don't like the master apprentice student teacher things. I think it's a bit cliched and trite. But the, the the younger man who's kind of serving his time under the older man looks at what the older man does and then thinks, well, I, I like that bit, that bit, and that bit. But I think it, should, it would be better off doing this, this, and this. And he goes out and implements his ideas. I think that's kind of a natural progression. And there's countless examples of that throughout kind of certainly football history and probably lots of other spheres as well. Um, 
yeah, but then I think that there are similarities between the football they play as well. They're both, if you look at this Spurs team, they're, they're big and physical and quick and intense, which is what, what Mourinho's are. Mourinho characterises his um, his teams as being dominant teams, and I think that's what Villas Boas wants his teams to do as well. He wants them to dominate games and lead the play. Um, so I think there are, there are similarities. But yeah, it just, it, I think it's perfectly normal that Villas Boas would have tried to improve on the way that he the way that Mourinho works and and I'm sure that Mourinho will that's part of a kind of continual process that there'll be someone working underneath Vias Boas who will try and improve on what he does that's kind of how it works isn't it well, if Vias Boas was just was ever going to be Mourinho light he wouldn't have been such a disaster at Chelsea he'd have it have been embraced. He would have just mimicked everything Mourinho did, and we've always been told that Chelsea just have always been set up in the Mourinho mould anyway. So he was desperate to, to make his own mark, and I mean, you know, maybe it's almost a perverse attempt to prove that he's his own man. Because I think Rory's right. The last thing, if you if you've studied under somebody, the last thing you want to do is just be called. X, Y, Z light, isn't it? You want to be your own man. And he just tried to do it too quickly when he was at Chelsea, but now he's found his feet. He did manage a couple other clubs before going to Chelsea, and I think... You speak to any, to any manager, though, and they will they will say that they... I saw Sammy Hook here a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he'd taken bits and bobs from Benitez and bits and bobs from Julier, and then he'd tried to do other things where he saw them going wrong. And I'm sure that the, that, for all that... That's fine, Roy, but Sammy Hoppia was a professional footballer for 17 years and worked under a bazillion different managers, whereas uh, Andre Villas-Boas is a guy, he's a football nerd from the age of 17, and since 2002, I think, for, you know, for, for basically his entire professional career worked under Mourinho until he left to go to, to Academica. I mean, it's slightly slightly different than a player, no? Yeah, no, it is, absolutely. I don't disagree with that. So he's got a, a smaller sphere of influence, I guess. But but then he will nevertheless have seen things that he he will have disagreed with Mourinho on. And I think that that is part of the process of developing your own identity as a manager. It's just, I think that the, the point there is, Rory, as well, that uh, André felt like he had more to give to the Mourinho team and he was always seen more as a scout and as a consultant rather than an assistant. And I think he wanted that, that job uh, and he was never given that opportunity. So he decided it was best for him to leave. If I can throw my own two cents in here. Um, I think these two are completely radically different in terms of the football they produce. I, I don't, you know, there's bits about the intensity. I mean, well, what manager going to say, well, we're not going to be intense. We're going to go out there and be all airy-fairy. You know, I, the, 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 I think everything about him is different. Tactically, AVB is so much more um, involved. Mourinho is a lot more straightforward. I think works on other things. But anyway, I think this is a debate we can pick up another time because we need to get more into the game. Um, I, the stupid cliche is a game of two halves, but obviously it was. Um, I thought Chelsea were battered in, in the first half, and then in the second in the second half they came out very, very nicely. Um, Alison, I want to throw this to you because you're the closest thing we have to a qualified referee here. <laughs> um, Fernando Torres, who played very well in the second half, but there was the, the, there was that incident. Um, I mean, later he would get sent off, but there was this weird Vertonghen incident where he seems to clip him from behind. Maybe Torres felt that he didn't foul him. They have a confrontation. His hand reaches up. It looks like, from one angle, it looks like he's caressing his face and saying, all right, sorry, mate. And from the other one, it looks like he's scratching. Um, I won't say like a girl because that's what Robbie Fowler said on TV and he had to apologize for it. Uh, you take... Well, really peculiar incident because I I couldn't I couldn't see 
any contact between Vertonghen and Torres initially, and so I have to assume. But Vertonghen didn't look like it didn't look like it was such a bad dive. If it was a dive, I assume it can't have been a dive. If you're going to dive, you dive better. So there must have been something happened. Maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But that was strange well, in itself. The referee, the, the referee saw the contact and gave the foul, right? So, the, well, but there wasn't any contact. So you couldn't have seen the contact. But the, li- the lines. The I was watching flag, on TV, and Mark Halsey flagged. said, "What a great job he was doing." So you must have seen the contact. No, the assistant flagged, assuming there'd been contact, because it didn't look like a dive. How I can think, you know I what think, the assistant I think, saw? I think because I because because I've tried it okay. out. I've tried it out, and then there's a lot of confusion because we're not sure is he being booked because of the trip, which might not have been a trip, or is he being booked because the linesman seemed to be very frenetic with his flag when there was the potential gouging of the nose incident from Torres. But if, it, if, if the linesman had really seen that, then that would have been a straight red. So it's peculiar, and I think we're going to find out today. Today is Monday as I'm speaking exactly what the referee did and didn't see and what's going to be reassessed because it's a big mess of confusion. But most people said, well, it oh, should have been sent off anyway. So he should have been sent off at that point, yes. Anybody not feel that he should have been sent off? All right, Pedro. Um, Torres in the second half, um, you know, looked sharper. He looked edgier. He's got the close-cropped hair and stuff. Is I don't want to say is, is this the beginning of a Torres renaissance because we said it, you know, I've said it so many times and it doesn't come to pass. But do you see any suggestion that, you know, maybe the arrival of Torres maybe lit a fire under him, even though supposedly he doesn't like competition? I, I don't know. Can we call him G.I. Fernando? Is that what we're <laughs> going to call him now? Um Look, I always thought he was a good player. His confidence, his form had suffered in Europe. He was still scoring a lot of goals, wasn't doing it in the Premier League. I know the whole story. I think that Mourinho believed Eto was in much better form and had actually been a professional for the last two years in Russia before he before he signed him. And then all of a sudden he sees Samuel now and is like, um, this isn't the same guy I was managing at Inter. So he's gone back with Fernando. It seems that he believes in him and he gave him a quick word after he had been sent off. Um, I think that th- there could be a renaissance of Fernando. Why not? Why not? So he's, he's still got the skills. He's still got reasonable pace and acceleration. So uh, he could be a valuable player up front. I still think that the strike situ- the striker situation at Chelsea is a bit of a mess. They should ne- never have let uh, Romelu Lukaku go. I don't know what Demba Bay is doing there because Mourinho obviously doesn't believe in him. So uh, considering Eto'o is out of form, uh, Bay is not an option, it doesn't seem, for Mourinho. I think, yeah, it can be Fernando's season. Um, right. So... Another chapter, the Juan Mata saga, because Mourinho goes out there, plays what I thought was a conservative formation, like he did at, uh, at Old Trafford with Ramirez in the front three package. They go a goal down. They could have been 2-0 down at halftime, and then he might have made a different choice. But then he sends on Mata, and um, Mata floats in the free kick, from which brave John Terry scores. Uh, and uh, he's vindicated, and it's brilliant, Jose, with his brilliant substitutions. Is that how it works? Uh, that that might not be how it works. It's certainly how it should be portrayed, isn't it? The, I think did, did Michael Owen call it a masterstroke winning on one World Cup winning Spanish midfielder? Okay, can I, can I say something about that? Just a brief digression on this gentleman you just mentioned. He also said pace is essential at all levels of the game. Now you've just watched Christian Eriksen for forty five minutes. And you watched him play very, very well in the first half. How can you come in and say that? Anyway, I digress. Go on. 
quite right too. Now, the, 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 there seemed to be some kind of detente between Mourinho and Mata on Friday before the game when Mourinho kind of said that he kind of intoned that he liked Mata's performance at Swindon and said that Mata had come a little bit towards him and so he would go a little bit towards Mata. He's obviously trying to turn Mata into a more Mourinho-style player. Well, I've got to admit, and, and I know he's not quick or particularly strong, Mata, but it's not. I never thought he's lazy. He doesn't. He tracks. He tracks back. He gets involved in play, and I think he brings other players into the game really well as well. So I'm, I'm a little bit baffled by why Mourinho has picked on Mata specifically. But what's fairly clear is that he is using the entire thing to make it, to make a point. There's no question about that. He, Mata is some sort of sacrificial victim at the altar of Mourinhoismo to kind of prove that Jose is in charge of everything and players. Everyone will do what he says. Alison, you have the final word on this uh, Tottenham. If you're AVB, are you happy that in the end you got a point or are you kind of annoyed that in the second half you let a game get away from you that maybe you should have killed in the first? I'm deeply annoyed. They were, they were dominant in the first half and then um, you know sometimes when a team get there's a sending off they become bolder, stronger, more difficult to break down. That didn't happen to Chelsea. They looked like a team down to 10 men and they should have they should have grabbed something at the end. Um, and also, you know, for, for, all the, for the whole, for the time that Mikel was on the pitch, who was at, deeply at fault for uh, the goal that uh, Spurs danced their way through into score, um, you, you really got to exploit the fact that you could you could argue that Chelsea were down to ten men for the whole game because 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 Mikel was I mean Mourinho <laughs> loves Mikel he yeah. loves Mikel and I just hope that that game and when he analyses it and looks at Mikel's role in the Tottenham goal he thinks ah actually there are things I don't like about Mata but he's actually better than Mikel. All right, on now to our debate. Um, I wish Matt Dickinson were here because he's lovely company and uh, very clever. But also, I think he's one of the big proponents at the times of, of this idea of, of having, um, for lack of a better word, B-sides or reserve sides actually playing in the football pyramid, playing real games against real league opposition. Um, uh, say a Manchester United B-side playing in League One, something like that. Uh, now, it works with different models, slightly different models, slightly different legislation, but obviously it, it, that's the way it's set up in Spain and in Germany. I think in Germany they cannot get promoted to the second flight. In, uh, in uh, Spain they can. They obviously can't ever be promoted to the same division as their parent clubs, but Barcelona B and uh, Real Madrid Castilla, which is their, their B side, have, have been in the second division as VRL in recent years. Um, the FA are supposedly looking at this. Um, Anybody really in favor and want to argue why this is such a great idea? I'm in favor because I've seen, uh, I've seen the transition happen over the last two years in Portugal where they've brought in uh, Benfica B, Sporting B, Porto B and so on. And they're playing in the second division right now, so the, se- the second flight, so to speak. It's not the third division, it's second division. And I always had a big problem uh, in the last decade or so with the lack of Portuguese players that are in Portugal and at the top clubs especially. And since the B teams have, have come about, there's been a lot more young Portuguese players making the jump from the B team to the top team because they're getting proper competition at home at a decent level and they're showing what they can do. It can be good for the academies. It can be good for for the young homegrown players to get that chance and not have to go out to Cyprus and not have to go out to to Eastern Europe to, to to get uh, quality football. Rory, has Pedro persuaded you? <laughs> uh, he, 
he has. I think that's that's, that's a really interesting kind of <laughs> paradigm. But sort of say for, for England, I, I I wouldn't quite go that far. I, I think the, the for a start, I think it's important to say that this isn't kind of the panacea for all of England's ills. The problem England has is far more complex than just saying, you know, let's bring in a closer system in the Premier League or let's introduce B teams. There is a, a sort of sociological, cultural problem with English football that will take decades to sort out. Leaving that aside, I wouldn't quite go far as far as introduce B teams, but what I would like to see is Premier League teams and Championship teams paired with League One and League Two teams, whereby the Premier League sides, so say Manchester United could have an arrangement with Berry, where they send five or six of their best prospects to Berry on a on a on a year or two year loan basis at a club send them to a club where they have coaching staff employed by the parent club so they can be sure that the players are getting coached properly. So that's a big worry for big clubs sending players out on loan. And the players can then develop still together having so they develop a degree of cohesion between them so that when they eventually return to Manchester United or wherever understand how to play as a team it doesn't cost the, the junior club its identity and you write in a clause saying that if that junior club gets to the Championship or the Premier League the, the arrangement then ceases what have you because I, I, I think there is a core issue here which is that there are too many clubs in English football I have strong thoughts on this subject but I will keep my powder dry Alison so Pedro and Rory are singing from comparable if not the same hymn sheet do you love this idea I really hate this idea uh, for so many reasons um, first of all the broad reason is I think it's deeply patronising to the rest of British football the idea that you would turn out one week whether you're Bury or not and you would be playing a team a B team who are not allowed to be promoted for example what's the blooming point in playing them imagine, it's just, just, it's say, just imagine late in the season this is the other problem with B team which they've had uh, in Austria there was a huge match fixing issue with this late in the season the B teams have no incentive whatsoever to win once they avoid relegation it creates huge exactly. issues there. Exactly. So I, I think it's. I. I, I do think it's patronising, and it it, it. it. It sort of under. It sort of undersells the the championship and league one, which 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 have their own joy and marvelousness, and it's sort of saying they're just a testing ground, and uh, I don't. I don't like that. I, I, w- I want to throw this out there because if I were our friend Dan Johnson from the Premier League, I might remind you that. We've just created the PDL. The, do anybody know what that is? Premier Development League or something? <laughs> or something. Something like that. <laughs> Basically, it's a proper league. I mean, the, the first year they had this absolutely ridiculous format, which nobody understood. But it is basically, an, uh, uh, I think it's under-21s or under-23s uh, for Premier League sides. You can have some older players uh, uh, in there as long as they're under-23. Um, the sides all play each other. It's much better. It's proper. There's an actual competition. You get a trophy at the end. Isn't this what we're talking about? I mean, you look at the quality of some of the 19, 20, 21-year-olds at Premier League clubs. Don't they benefit from playing each other more than they would, say, playing in League Two on, like, some mud patch with some, like, 30-year-old, like, 15-stone center half kicking lumps out of them? Yeah, well, that, that, was, that was going to be the next point. Well, uh-huh. The reason I don't like it is is the way it's set up in this country, reserve team football and academy football, you have to work out what do you... What are you trying to achieve? And what you what you need to do is make sure the young players, academy players, are playing the rights. They're playing against other academies uh, from a similar level, so they can test themselves 
and be properly coached for that. And that's the other thing we're saying that we're assuming for some reason if you're young, you're therefore English. I mean, who's to say that your reserve team, if you're Manchester United, won't be full of your the, the, the overseas players you've you've taken and you're trying to bring through? You can't. You're going to suddenly involve, make a rule that only the only people playing in Man United or Liverpool B are all English. No, you're not going to be able to do that. I, I think there are creative uh, uh, solutions to be had. We have to move it on in this minute. So since I'm hosting here, I get the uh, last word. Uh, I want to throw out a couple more creative solutions. I completely agree with with Rory about the year long uh, loan, and I don't think once you go on loan with that format. You shouldn't be allowed to be recalled. I think it just provides instability. There are other solutions. I think co-ownership is a very good way uh, for clubs to minimize their risk and actually be incentivized to develop players rather than just get results. Um, one other thing I would like to see, which has been introduced in some countries, is you can't mandate this through legislation, but you can take a little bit of money out of the enormous Premier League contract and say, we will give you a bonus based on the amount of young players uh, you play in the lower divisions and amount, and based on the amount of minutes that young players get on the pitch. There's teams in League 1 and League 2 that are packed with guys who are 28, 30 years old. Um, some of them are extremely ordinary. They tend to make more money than the young players, and yet they just stick around because it's so important to them to finish, say, 7th instead of 10th. If they were incentivized to play younger players, whether they're their own guys or people on loan from uh, further up the pyramid, I think it would be beneficial to everybody uh, in, uh, in the English pyramid. All right, time now for some quick hits. The SAS has reformed. Or is that too simple? Luis Suarez and Daniel Sturridge propel Liverpool past Sunderland so they can play together. Right, Alison? Yes, they can, Gab. Um, it, it seems, though, it works as long as Sturridge remembers his role and to be unselfish and you know I spoke to him about it he's taking it seriously this this idea that it's not about him it's about the team and he wants to be part of the project and the evidence seemed to be there at Sunderland that that, that he was doing that and he was very unselfish um if he's, and if he's prepared to sort of play the ball where Suarez points to where he wants it to be, they will be a a fantastic partnership. The problem will come when Coutinho is, is fit because you know that 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 that's a gorgeous proposition, the three of them playing. But I mean, it might just make Liverpool far too attacking and therefore vulnerable on the counter. Leave it to the kind-hearted Brendan Rodgers to sort it out. Meanwhile, Kevin Ball is in charge for the time being at Sunderland, but we're told that'll change. Uh, Rory, who will get the job and who should get the job other than Marcelo Bielsa or uh, Uruguayan of your choice? Uh, all Uruguayans should be employed in Premier League management roles. I think that that, that is obvious to all of us. Um, I'm not quite sure who'll get the job at the moment. Margaret Byrne said uh, said in, in the programme notes yesterday that they will spend this week interviewing candidates, and that reminded me that when you when you kind of appointing a manager, you, you can't do right for doing wrong, really, because if you speak to lots of people, you look indecisive. If you speak to just one person, you look like you've not really held a proper kind of candidacy procedure. Um, in terms of the people who have been mentioned, Moulinstein, I suppose, obviously wants a job. Poyer seems to be the favourite, but I think he's talking it up more than he... Than, than Sunderland are. The one name that's interesting on that list is Ralph Rangnick, who I think would be an excellent appointment. Uh, I just hope for some sake that it's not Stuart Pearce. Ralph Rangnick, the poor man's Arrigo Sacchi. Arsenal went away at Swansea. Pedro, they're top of the table. First time you're on this season. Tell me the truth. You knew all along that the Gunners were going to be this good, right? When everybody was all doom and gloom, you weren't among Wenger's critics, right? I was among his critics, and I still think they're not this good. Um, the Ozil signing was amazing. Twelve away victories in a row, top of the league. They've lost once in the last seven months. 
go back and look at some of the teams they beat away from home besides Bayern, Bayern Munich. Munich. Okay, when the first leg had already rendered the tie uh, meaningless or that game meaningless. Uh, no, I look, they're a good team. I think uh, they'll they'll finish in the top four once again, but they're they're not title contenders. They're not deep enough, and uh, they need they need a valid option instead of of uh, Giroud up front. A win for the whole Tigers, uh, as I like to call them, because it's so much nicer and rolls right off the tongue compared to that nasty whole city football club. Um, but Allison, your pal Big Sam is angry. He suggested that Robbie Brady might have taken a tumble. Um, Brady's not foreign as far as I know, so surely that's impossible. Uh, actually, the, the, the TV co- pictures of that weren't very good. and um, Big Sam's TV pictures were I'm very sure, good. I'm sure they were excellent. I mean, it did, it did. we didn't get a very close angle. It did look like he fell very easily, which I suppose constitutes a dive. And there was a clear handball by Livermore, I think, in that game. So West Ham, you know... Sam gets angry most days anyway, but he had he had reason to. But to be honest, the big problem for Hull when they came up was how on earth they were really low scorers in the championship. How can you get promoted when you don't know how to score goals? That was always going to be their problem. And I, I defy anyone to really mind that they're, <laughs> that they're scoring their goals in slightly underhand ways. I mean, they're, they're, they were favourites to go down. They're, they're doing what they can do. Good on them. There you go. Good for you, Steve Bruce. And um, spare thought for Big Sam. Rory, City also stumble away to Villa 3-2. Was this a tactical masterclass from Paul Lambert or, as Pellegrini suggests, a bunch of episodes going Villa's way and City deserving much better? And yes, I'm thinking of offsides goals, uh, free kick wonder strike and a crazy punt and another blunder by Joe Hart. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with Pellegrini, to be honest. I think it's yeah, funny was, you would uh, agree with the South American. Well, no, but I, to, to be fair, to, to be fair to to me, Jab, I uh, I do quite like Paul Lambert as well. I think he's an excellent manager, and I'm I'm pl- and delighted to see that three five two and three four three and all these things are back in in, in the Premier League. It's almost like like watching a league where where people are thinking, which is which is a novelty for England. Um, yeah, City are a funny one because they seem to be really impressive when they want to be. They can show these glimpses of being an excellent side, but then at other times they they do kind of switch off. And for all that, it was kind of Episodic the way they lost the game. Um, that Villa had those chances to, to have those moments is because City switched off. I'm also intrigued by what happens with David Silva. Because I don't. I think City are a better side without David Silva in it, despite the fact that he is probably their best player. And I think that's quite an interesting little tension to, to discover. Ooh, I might have to send Yaya Torre and Sergio Aguero around your house to persuade you otherwise. But I take your point. I take your point on Lambert as well. I, I think uh, I'm a huge fan of what he's doing on this day. I think kind of got the rub of the green. Southampton win again as Brad Pitt stand in Osvaldo scores. Uh, Pedro, would you rather discuss Southampton or the importance of Brad Pitt as a modern day role model and male style icon? I'm a big Brad Pitt fan. I think I he, uh, he deserves an Oscar by now. But as far as uh, Southampton are, are concerned, I mean, Osvaldo's going to score goals. He's been doing it his whole career. I'm not surprised. And, and Pochettino, who came in uh, amidst uh, kind of a revolution uh, after Atkins has been uh, sacked, uh, is doing, is doing a, a really good job. And Lambert's still scoring. And they, they're a solid team. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by, by what they're doing there. Top eight? Top ten. Top six, and Osvaldo looks like Johnny Depp, not Brad Pitt. Gab, here's one for you. Talk about, please talk about the Madrid derby. Um, I assume it's still the usual two-horse race in La Liga? It is, but as I so wittily put it in my column on Monday, not the two horses many people might think of. Uh, Atletico Madrid, uh, 
they won one nil at the Bernabeu on Saturday night, but it was one of the most impressive performances you've seen in a long time. Diego Costa may well be insane, but he stayed on the right edge of ferocity and 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 just sheer aggression on the night. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti probably didn't help himself too much with some of his decisions, but Diego Simeone and Atletico really really good value. They've won uh, uh, they've won eight of eight between uh, the Champions League and La Liga. Uh, they played twice against Barcelona this season and did not uh, lose in either game. Uh, they've done this on a budget. Diego Simeone is one of the good guys, I think, uh, and I think most of England will discover that once they get beyond the Beckham Institute. That's all we've got time for today. Come see us live in Birmingham. I know, Pedro, you'll be there, right? Uh, can't wait. The links are on Twitter and our SoundCloud page as well. Uh, if you live anywhere near the West Windlands and don't come, then clearly you must hate football. And no, I didn't write the script. Chris Skinner did. Thanks to my panel. It's uh, Rory K. Smith, Alison Rudd, and the wonderful Pedro Pinto. Uh, we're all on Twitter. We love to hear from you, especially Pedro. So uh, please chime in. You can also write to us, as so many of you do every single week. It's gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.